Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm uh, your second host of two today, Jesse Case. That's right. You'd, you'd think that would be slicker, given that we actually didn't need to work out any of the That's true. It was just process of elimination, and we still messed it up. This is this is an Andy-less episode. Andy is it's just before 4th of July, and Andy's off somewhere sunning himself. He's posing in the hills. Mm-hmm. He'll, there'll be pictures on Instagram for you to see later. So it's me. And two so and it, two British people for the Fourth of July to celebrate one, my nation's one. independence from these horrible people. Well, a semi-British person, <laughs> but also an Australian person. Oh, I don't know. Uh, any, I know nothing. All right. And, uh, <laughs> an Australian person who is living in Britain. Ah, there it is. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, who do who do we have today? What's going on? Well, we have a guest who is, I would say, British podcasting royalty. Uh, one of the hosts of No Such Thing as a Fish, which is also, you may know, the people who are behind QI. Uh, also, We Can Be Weirdos, another podcast, and The Cryptid Factor with friend of the show, Reese Darby. Uh, that's a third podcast, and the author of the brand new book, which is just out just now, right now, called The Theory of Everything Else, A Voyage into the Weird. It is Dan Shriver. Hey, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks yeah, for joining. Thanks so much for coming. Um, yeah, where, what, what happened to Andy? You couldn't be bothered? Pretty much. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I had yeah. uh, so so just for the listeners at home, we're starting a bit late, right? I was going to join the podcast late, but I because I have therapy, um, but I've gotten out early. Because um, does that mean you're yep, fixed? Everything's good. Nice. Hey, congrats. Yeah, she said we're she said well done. we're done. She said, um, <laughs> yep. She said we're done here. Uh, but that means I'm far too. I mean, I, I'm far too caffeinated because I. So what I did, and I do this anyway, I think I've talked about this before, I drink loads of coffee, loads of caffeine before therapy, so so I talk faster uh, to get... <laughs> oh, wow, that's so economical. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, but today, thinking maybe I can get out a little early, I went way too hard. Because um, I was like, <laughs> you know, we've got a podcast with Dan, so I'm just going to pound like two pots of coffee here. And uh, and, wow. your, and your therapist, did, did that then become the focus of your therapy today? Was that sort of like, let's talk about this therapy strategy of yeah, yours? <laughs> yeah, no, my um, my therapy constantly breaks the fourth wall. Like we're we're constantly <laughs> talking about the process of therapy itself. And um, do you think your your therapist goes home going, he's so innovative. He's really smashing the walls down of therapy. Yeah. This guy's <laughs> yeah. incredible. Yeah. Oh, my other clients are so slow. I hate it. <laughs> Jesse really brings it whenever we have therapy. Jesse's like when you do times two on your podcast listening. Is that you? Yeah, that's in me. In th- yeah, yeah, that's that sort is. of what I do in therapy is I, um, yeah, it's like an audio book that no one should have to. It's an audio book where you pay them to listen. And <laughs> where the author pays, it's an audiobook. And, um, you know, if we were better, we would have used that as a segue, Matt. Yeah, but we're not. We're, we're nowhere near as professional as... So, Dan. Uh, you, yeah, you said this book is well, out this just is, now at 2.17 two yeah, Central yeah, Standard we could, Time? Exactly. I think, I think there's probably a fair overlap between our listenership and... And at the very least, no such thing as a fish, which is a huge listenership, uh... But uh, so a fair number of our listeners may already know this, but tell us about the book because uh, I sorry you had some coffees when we did Reese Darby's show together at Largo a couple of weeks ago when you were visiting town briefly. Yeah, I um, left a copy at Largo as well, sitting there in the dressing room, um, just hoping 
that uh, some comedians will find it and go, hey, this guy seems nice. Um, I'm, I'm going to be back at Largo next week. I'm going to be there on the Pete Holmes show, so I'm going to have another look through the book. Oh, great. Or I could yeah. just buy an actual full copy of yeah, the book. Yeah, what do you... No, no, no. You just wait for gigs to look at books? You, what do you mean? Yeah, exactly. I'm just reading... You know, it's like... It's, it's like if you got like a, a, a dent. I remember like my dentist had some Reader's Digests, and there was like one article that I was like working my way through at each dentist visit. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like Do six that. month intervals. Matt, why are your, why yeah. are your teeth so nice? Like, well, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really into this Sulawesi um, geography. Of- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, oh, I'll quickly just mention what it is, which is that it's a. I'm, I'm very obsessed with weird theories that people have around the world, and through doing no such thing as a fish, which is a pod where each week four of us who do this show in the UK called QI, which is a show that mixes comedy and fact, it's a panel show. Uh, we we do a pod where we bring our favorite fact from the last seven days to the table and we discuss it, and uh, you know, not twenty years basically of doing research. I, was, I haven't really found someone who is historically important or like a place or a, or a moment in history that didn't have a little bit of like weird batshit about it or like a belief of batshit behind the the person that I was looking into, you know, Thomas Edison. It could be Albert Einstein. It could be anyone. Mm. And you think, oh, they're really rational. But then underneath it, there's just this little bit of oddness. And I thought we keep <laughs> sweeping that under the carpet and getting a bit embarrassed by talking about our weirdnesses. So the book is just showing how people's weird ideas have actually positively changed the world rather than been all conspiracy theory have you have you got any favorites that you discovered in the course of writing the book yeah i mean the whole basically the whole book is a favorite so when i was doing the audiobook i virtually was just going oh this one's amazing <laughs> oh, <wait laughs> um, the, the one thing that really got me was um okay this is a science podcast who pcr the pcr test basically curbed the entire pandemic's um death toll by a huge amount millions right. more would have died unless we'd all been taking this test now prior to the pandemic i'd never heard of pcr before in my life um do you guys know who invented pcr i don't I I weirdly do just because I was writing on a science show that straddled the begin like straddled the pandemic like the pre-pandemic and post-pandemic and this became one of the topics and it was because right. it was connected to geography and one of the areas uh was the national park in question that um that I think you're about to talk about Yeah well so this is I I think that's right so um the Carrie Mollis is the guy who invented PCR and no one really ever talks about him. He should be a household name because PCR has kind of changed everything. It's It's been used uh, for forensics, so for DNA testing and all that sort of stuff. It's given a level of accuracy that we've never had before in history. It's been used for archaeology. So if you're looking for trying to identify the bones of a king, again, it's just taken it to a place we've never done before. It's, it's a really like game changer moment. And uh, the guy who invented it, Carrie Mullis, uh, in the year that he invented PCR, for which he won the Nobel Prize... Um, he also claimed that while he one night, late at night, was going out to the toilet, an outhouse uh, in his country home, that he got into a conversation with an English-speaking phosphorescent raccoon who then abducted him and took him into his spaceship for about four hours, then returned him onto another street. And he spent the rest of his life trying to work out what the hell was that raccoon and has anyone else seen it? I hmm. am going to back up for a second because... I did know about Carrie Marlis, and I did know some other weird things about his 
opinions later on in life, but I did not know the phosphorescent raccoon story, so thank you. <laughs> that is. Oh, okay. You, you, yeah, I mean, he yeah, was, so, he so was wild. I very confidently was like, I got this story. I know. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> He is wild. He, he, I mean, the stuff that you'll know is this hugely controversial stuff where he kind of said that there was no correlation between HIV and AIDS. And so that was a horrible thing to say because it's a thing where it's a lot of scientists called, uh, sorry, it's a thing that a lot of people who've won Nobel Prizes, particularly scientists, are, seem to get. It's a disease that you get after winning the Nobel Prize, which is called Nobelitis, where it's the sudden belief that everything you ever thought in your head should now come out of your mouth right. as if you're an expert <laughs> in it, even though you might know zero about it. And Yeah, um, you're the, you're the laureate in poetry. Up. And uh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's just like everyone. So Mullis said HIV doesn't cause AIDS. And so there were dictators in Africa who used his opinion and said, look, this Nobel Prize winner says this. Therefore, we don't need to give medicine to our people and caused hundreds of thousands of deaths. So he's there's a yin to the yang in terms of him saving lives with PCR versus the amount of death. But I mean, he was yeah, he was wacky. He used to try and sell little cards that had DNA of celebrities in them, jewelry with celebrity DNA in them. So you could buy some Albert Einstein earrings or some Marilyn Monroe nose piercings. Um, he, was, he was, yeah, extraordinary <laughs> guy. And yeah, he spent all, spent all his life trying to work out why this raccoon abducted him into a spaceship. So we could have saved a lot of lives in Africa if someone had just got a like glow, day glow raccoon costume and hidden in his garden at night and told him to stop with all the nonsense about the HIV connection. I, I can't believe no one thought to do that yeah i <laughs> like just with other stuff generally for him just do that clearly yeah. no one's watched real genius and knows that <laughs> if you've got one like i i often if you appear in someone's sleep i i oftentimes find that um expertise especially extreme expertise in a field um i, I mean I'm, I'm not saying there's only so much room in the in the brain I'm not saying that, but extreme expertise in a field generally means uh, they're just horrible at other things. Horrible because um, mm. you're, you're so all in on something that uh, you actually, when you're not in that field, seem pretty dumb. Uh, like I um, it's it's really weird, man. I, I so I, in the pandemic, um, I I worked uh, I worked on the Moderna vaccine. Well, I wasn't in a lab oh, coat right. looking at a microscope. You know what I mean? I was a, I was like mm. a lab assistant. Um, cool. But this was just uh, during a, a clinical trial location. I'm nobody. It was nothing. You know, I was getting coffee for a guy. Uh, but uh, the cool thing is we would all, we would have it was all via Zoom because everything was shut down. So we would have Zooms with, um, you know, these huge deal virologists. Like everyone's figuring out the study and it was these like actual geniuses, you know, um, these huge deal people. And that was my favorite part because we'd ga get, you know, gather around the laptop and um, sort of zoom into the mothership and everybody's figuring out what's going on. And, you know, and these like they're the smartest people in the world and they couldn't figure out Zoom where it would be like <laughs> it would be like a sketch where almost where like um, Anthony Fauci would just for half an hour have like a filter on that made him look like a fox or something. And, and you know, <laughs> one guy, his background 
he was trying to make it like the beach. And th- this is, you know, like the head of the NHS or something. And he's trying to make it look like the beach, but it was clearly just his camera roll. So it'd be like weird pictures of his wife and stuff where like his, <laughs> his background. And <laughs> it was horrible. Um, it was horrible. And and sometimes they would talk about something else. They would just be trying to small talk and you'd realize they're, they know nothing. Like they're insane people. They know yeah. everything about uh, sequencing RNA everything but then just insanity they just know nothing so focused yeah Yeah. i just remember there was one one um little nugget that i remember about when the vaccine was being developed is one thing they needed to make sure was the vials that they were being carried in were really strong enough that they wouldn't be breaking along the way and then you have this you know crisis of under under supplying all the medicines and vaccines that you need so what they needed something was basically something that could survive if you dropped it down a flight of stairs as you're carrying it and that then became the stress test for this one place they would just they would make them and quickly go out to the staircase and chuck them down the staircase in the the building they were in and if they weren't shattering they're going yes that's the level that was the way that they developed it like physically chucking them down staircases Mm -hmm. Yeah. High quality science. Yeah. High yeah. quality. High quality stuff. Exactly. Um so he so what's the theory there? Because that's not just um that's not him just having some I mean that's that's uh, psychosis. Oh well that story. That's with the with the recruit. Yes, sorry. I, mean, I didn't mean to yeah, pivot yeah. back, but he, yeah. No, no, he so for him, he I mean for the reason I put it in the book was it was just quite relevant to the point I was trying to make that sort of madness and genius can work together sometimes and allow people to see things differently so when he had the idea for pcr he went back to the people that he was working for he told them the idea and they all said you're, you're nuts this will never work and he spent two years going against everyone saying that this wouldn't work and eventually cracking it and making it work and for me it sort of feels like that's the same brain that said keep looking for the raccoon despite people saying you're crazy it's this sort of this dogged i need to sort this out yeah um, for him the mis- the mystery of the raccoon thing was he said four hours later he's walking on a road it's suddenly dawn he can't work out how he got there because it felt like time had just traveled in an instance and he was missing his flashlight if he'd fallen asleep you know it was quite wet outside there's a bit muddy he was completely dry and there was no mud on him whatsoever so there was no suggestion that he'd been laying down anywhere and so he he just had this in his head and there's a weird ending to the story and this is you know this is a guy that did a lot of drugs he wasn't on drugs at the time but he claims he was once saved by a woman after he'd done um, some uh, some laughing gas and the pipe got stuck in his mouth. This lady came and saw him and he passed out on the ground and the pipe was just in it, just pumping the shit in. And so he should have died. And he woke up and the pipe was somewhere else in the room. And he was like, how the hell did I... How did that happen? No one else is here. Right. And years later, or like a year or whatever, he's at a party and this woman comes up to you and he says, hi, nice to meet you. And she says, oh, we've met. I saved your life that night when you had the uh, laughing gas thing. And he went, what? You were in my house? And she said, no, no, no. I was in a different city at the time, but I traveled across the astral plane and I took it out of your sure. mouth. To... This is the guy who invented PCR. Yeah. And yeah. So he, but then that raccoon story, he, years later, he's um, in a bookshop. He sees a book called Communion by Whitley Strieber which is the the classic of UFO abduction books. I think it was like the first major abduction book. The The cover had a gray alien head on it, and that's the very first time that that was properly depicted. The the classic image we now have as emojis and everything, that is, that is from this book. 
And he's at home reading it and he gets a call from his daughter saying, Dad, you've got to read this book. It's really amazing. It's called Communion by Whitley Strieber. And he's like, wow, that's insane. I am literally reading it right now. Why, why do you want me to read it? And she says, uh, I haven't told you this, but you know when me and my fiance or husband or whatever, we borrowed your, your holiday house? And he's like, yeah, a few months ago. Um, the weirdest thing happened. I, I went out to go to use the bathroom. And I kind of just I disappeared. And my, my partner was looking for me for hours and hours and hours and couldn't find me. And I don't remember anything. I just remember waking up on this road and he's going, that's the exact same road that I was on. That's the exact same time difference. That's the exact same everything. <laughs> Except she's got someone who can corro corro uh, corroborate the story as a, in a partner. And he said, honey, tell me, did you see a talking glowing raccoon? And she said, no. And so he's like, damn it. And he didn't, he didn't get his moment. But it's as if it's, so it's he, as if it's genetic, that kind of thing. Exactly. What can you trust? What can you trust in this story? It's so hard to tell. But again, this guy changed the world. No, I know. It's like the, it's like the Martin Luther thing. Like, he, you know, he, uh, the concept of individuality is basically like everything we know is because of Martin Luther. But he was, you know, uh, thought he saw the devil while he was taking uh, a shit. He would smear shit on the walls and just a violent schizophrenic. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, that's great. That's great. Yeah, didn't know about him. But yeah, so the, the book is um, that's just an example of like one of the stories that I I just dug up a lot of interesting stories and just found a lot of weird facts that I just wanted to tell. I did a whole chapter on the Apollo moon landings. And weirdly, the the thing that shocked me most of all of all the facts I found for this book is that Neil Armstrong's first uh, Neil Armstrong's first footstep on the moon wasn't even his favorite footstep. It was his like <laughs> second favorite footstep. Yeah, I've ranked all mine. Yeah. Exactly. We don't, not many of us have a ranking, do we? A top 10 footsteps. But Neil rightfully should have at least number one top favorite footstep for being the moon. And it doesn't even pit, it's not even there. It's, uh. So what is when, number one? It's when he was in uh, Jerusalem and he was walking with a historian and he said, is there anywhere that the, that Jesus historically would have walked on? And he said, well, these are the steps that lead to the temple that he would have gone to. So these steps haven't been changed in thousands of years. So right now you are stepping on a step that Jesus himself would have walked on. And he said, I have to say I'm more excited by taking this step right now than I was taking the one on the moon. But can he confirm that Jesus had never been on the moon? We, I know. Good, I was just good I was just thinking that. Like if you're a sufficiently, you know, doesn't isn't Jesus like sort of part of God? And if you believe in that, if he's everywhere, he's been well, on he's, the moon. Yeah, but he's narrowing it down, isn't he? Because Jesus didn't walk on every bit of earth. So this is the, you need you need an exact was Jesus at right. the at the sure, uh, but if the ocean of tranquility, the, the sea of tranquility, yeah, I think it is it. where Jesus would have walked if he was on the moon. No, good call. You know, um, <laughs> he's he's walking on the you know the maybe even the whole walking on water, walking on the sea thing, maybe even came from Jesus's moon visit. Uh, Much easier to pull that stunt off on the moon as absolutely. well. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, good, good calls, Jesse. Thank you. Really? Yeah, no, yeah, I'm. A, I should have had you no, for I'm, the I'm, research process. No, I'm a book. thinker. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> Your therapist has no idea what she's got on her hands here. It's wonderful. Uh, no, that um, sounds uh, that sounds fantastic. What and what is the name of this book? We can so we can all go get it. Or it's called the Theory of Everything Else. The Theory of Everything um, Else. It was out in the U yeah, it was out in the UK in October, but it's just come out in the states as of a couple of days ago. And I got to say, like, not uh, you know, and there's one at Largo if you want to read moments. it. Get over there. 
There's one at Largo, so no one buy it. Just go to Largo, get backstage. Just get yourself uh, booked. Probably you have you to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, dedicate your life to an art form. The, get backstage. The easiest way to read this book is to get booked at Largo, <laughs> a specific <laughs> venue in LA. Mm-hmm. There we go. There is only one copy in the States, and that's it. So, yeah. That's, yeah, if you, yeah, if you want to do it the hard way, you can also get it from any bookshop, but that's, that feels like that's a real boring. hassle compared to... Yeah, no, no, no. Don't do that. Yeah, that's that's terrible. Hmm. Um, Dan, uh, we, we've already slightly covered this, but we ask our guests before we get into the stories, what, if anything, is your background in science? And that's ranged from classes people have liked or hated, to blowing stuff up in the woods to their, with their friends, to spending a couple of decades researching for a knowledge-based panel show. Sure. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's basically it. Because I went to a I went to a really odd school in Sydney. So I was fr- I was born and raised in Hong Kong. Then I moved to Sydney for my teenage years, and I, I in, got enrolled into a school called Rudolf Steiner, which is a um, it's a very bizarre hippie. I thought it was a hippie school. It turns out it's a bit more dangerous. Turns out that and I only found this out in the process of writing the book that my the founder Rudolf Steiner believed himself to be genuinely a descendant of Atlantis. And so that was the kind of school that I was going to. And so science was there, but uh, fringe science, they were quite, they were were more excited by the fringe science stuff. Like I genuinely got really good marks at school for a presentation I gave on the fact that I said there were Atlantean crystals that were hidden underneath the Great Pyramid of Giza and that we had found a secret tunnel that contains them. I stood up in class and gave that as a lecture and got really good marks for it. So science was part of my life, but it wasn't. It wasn't really the front runner uh, in a school like that. But, but, but science, science, sort of in quotes. Science yeah, in a very exactly. And then I moved to the UK, and I think it was. Um... I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, what was the proof? Yeah. This paper. I'm fascinated by this. There are Atlantean crystals under the pyramids, but what did the instead of the paper? Surely didn't just state that. Like this is a fact. Oh no! This is my this is my paper. Yeah, it wasn't. I was right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, you know, how did you was, prove? Um, how did you prove this? This ob, ob, well, this obvious thing. Well, what you there, need to Jesse. do is you need to go to a school like mine where proof is not a burden that you need to <laughs> supply. Uh, it's more vibes. It's more vibes, and yeah, it's sort of you know, like I remember we went on. They said we're going on an excursion this term, and we were very excited. And the only excursion I can remember was when we were told to put our heads down on our table and imagine we were in ancient Egypt <laughs> walking through Tutankhamun's tomb. Yes, and it was very descriptive. That's that's called. Field like, tripping balls. We uh, yeah. did that at my school. <laughs> um, wow. But so science was then when I moved to the UK and someone pointed out that all of the stuff I was reading, Eric von Daniken and all that stuff was bollocks. And that had you heard of Carl Sagan? And I think it was probably Carl Sagan that made me suddenly realize, wow, this is far more interesting than the, the made up stuff. Wow. Okay, that's and great. And it's my big love. Science, I'm, 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 I love scientists, science, so I'm, I'm particularly a fan of individual scientists who are in the kind of more poetic sense. Uh, they can, you know, literally Sagan. Everything Sagan has ever written, I think, is the best example of how science could be communicated. I, he is sort of bit, the sort of Yeah, a bit rude to the podcast, uh, but sure. Um. <laughs> I thought when he was called probably science, I was coming onto a show that was more like my school, and this is a bit disappointing. No, we we have we, stuff we about very... those crystals. We have things about the Atlantean. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows that. Yeah, I mean, we did very much put we, the title was not picked without cause. <laughs> it was very much. <laughs> 
Yep. Kind of stepping on our toes with the Atlantean crystal story, but uh So sorry, sure. yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, we, we got some we got some very serious stories that have been sent in. I think um I like our listener Eric Voicevert sent in a story that you know, I th- I think this is pretty uh you know, you 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 were uh, Jesse. You were working on um, you know the vaccine and stuff, and I I, I gotta uh, quit saying I, it like I, that. I, it sounds now nah, lean in. You man. were working near it. the vaccine. Yeah, it was in the building. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it wasn't out yet, and it was in the building, very indie, very underground. Yeah, it was there. I th- I actually think this this story it, <laughs> it it seems light, but I think it it does have serious repercussions if it can if it's legit. But insects could help turn beer waste into beef. Hmm. All right. Well, that okay, that certainly is a combination of words. Um, this story is uh, it's in Yahoo Finance, but it's paraphrasing <laughs> a story from The Economist. Okay. Uh huh. So I'll I'll take this. Sure. So um, eating insects is one of those ideas that never quite seems to catch on. The United Nations. By the way, it says never quite seems to catch on, but actually. I didn't realize this is there's like a whole conspiracy theory field that are you familiar with a sort of 15 minute city conspiracy theory? No. Oh, what's that? That sounds cool. So th- this is this is something I've only become aware of because a few of my friends who've gone off the deep end and we all have those yep. now and increasingly in the last couple yep. of years. Uh, we but, really we really got our fair share in the last few years. Didn't yeah, it's we, it's friends, very disappointing but, and then it makes me wonder I always have to wonder, like, because they think we've gone off the deep end. That's the issue. Oh, yeah. Y- you know. But, have we? Uh, yeah. And I, I think. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think also the comedy world that we live in is also more primed than most communities to really, like, the, the sort of psychological makeup of a comedian is is sort of right. It, it's, it's right in the wheelhouse for conspiracy theorist thinking. Yeah. But I've definitely had a couple of friends on various social media suddenly post something like no bill gates i will not eat bugs yep. and i'll be like what yeah. is what is this yep. story well you and, matt, and so- matt you and i will have had one of the biggies of a, a former stand-up in the uk who's pivoted into complete kind of uh conspiracy and not so much conspiracy but sort of like um uh, anti-mask, anti-all that sort of stuff in that period. Yep, James Corden. Um, Jesus, that guy. Yeah, Brutal. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Brutal. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. Is the, is the A show. Titanic truther. What? Come on, James. Um, but yeah, they... No, who um, are you referencing? Who's... It- I don't know. I suddenly pulled out because I didn't want to like get. If you mention these things on shows, oh okay, that's fair. That's fair. And stuff, and I don't want yeah, to bring controversy I, to your show. I think I know who you're talking about, but yes, is, is the short answer. Yeah. Um, although there are several, pe- there are like three or four that I think could easily be in that group, but um, <laughs> but it's somehow connected to a a con- someone a researcher posited that it would be nice if we could organize cities so that every amenity that you might need is within 15 minutes of not having to, of either walking or public transport. Okay. Right. And this somehow got conflated with a study in Oxford or a suggestion in Oxford on a, on some sort of civic planning. And it's somehow the, I can't tell you all the dots that connect here, but somehow it leaps from that to Bill Gates wants to keep us imprisoned in various 
uh, enclosures in cities that we're not allowed to leave under penalty of fining or worse, and we will all have to eat bugs. Mm. Um, It's somehow like it's a very short step from that to some kind of like dystopian sci-fi world where we are all, you know, in these sort of various gated conclaves or or enclaves in um in cities. But I have eaten. I don't know. Have any of you eaten a bug? I, I, I accidentally I, ate a, one this morning. Oh, well, acci- yeah, I'll accidentally there, eat a few. Sure. There was a demo at the science museum that had a few. Uh, and you know they they have various. One of them like tasted a bit like mushroomy and wasn't very pleasant, like bad mushroom. Uh, others were. Okay. Did the science museum they know they were having this demo, or were you just sort of eating bugs at the science? No, I was just in the I was just in the hedges, and you know I got quite a few in before they moved me on. But I was just I was just rustling you got it about. Confused with like the Willy Wonka factory, you're just eating shit at the science museum. Yeah. <laughs> Everything here can be licked. It's just sir, please. Oh, he's back. That one's back. He's licking the telescope. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> but yeah, it, it it has been pointed out by many as well that um as well as being a good source of protein, we seem to be okay with eating sea bugs, but not lamb bugs. Mm. Like a, a crustacean underwater is fine and in some cases very highly pri- pri- uh, sort of prized food, but um but anyway, eating insects is one of those ideas that never quite seems to catch on, says this article uh, softly. The UN endorsed the idea a decade ago, but in the West, at least, bugs remain mostly absent from supermarket shelves. Faced with an indifferent or disgusted public, scientists have been exploring other options. One is to feed the insects instead to livestock, which are not so picky. But, of course, insects need to eat. To date, they've been mostly reared on leftover chicken feed, but the supply of that is limited. And if insect-reared meat is about to, is to take off, new sources will be needed. In a paper in Applied Entomology, Niels Erikson, a biochemist at Alborg University, suggests feeding them on the waste products of the beer industry. The world knocks back around 150, 185 billion litres of beer every year. Each litre produces between 3 and 10 litres of wastewater full of discarded barley and yeast. The mix is rich in protein but deficient in carbohydrates, especially compared to chicken feed. Most insects grown for feed on the, in the wild or on... Uh, depend in the world on the carbohydrates found in rotting fruit. Whether insects would actually consider brewery waste a square meal was therefore unclear. So they used the larvae of the black soldier fly, which is a workhorse of the... Uh, what is this word? Entomor... Mediation world? Entomor... In- they just chucked that in in quotes and they never explained It's gotta it. be remediation. So entomor remediation... It's uh, it's defined, here we go, I've Googled it, defined as a type of remediation in which insects are used in order to decontaminate a degraded soil. I, I okay, thought it was so it's like, a remediation of the Intimo variety. You know, like when, when someone's yeah. like, uh, uh, El Nino means the Nino. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Um, so the juvenile insects were divided into three groups, which were offered beer waste, a chicken feed, or a mixture of both. The researchers monitored their weight gain and the amount of carbon dioxide they exhaled, which helped assess the insect's metabolic performance. They happily consumed both brewery waste and chicken feed and grew equally well on either food source. When Dr. Erickson ground some up and chemically analyzed the resulting paste, nice, he found few differences in how nutritious the insects would be to farm animals. The results confirmed one of Dr. Erickson's hunches. Although black soldier fly larvae favor rotting fruit in the wild, they're capable of eating carrion too. Like beer waste... 
it it is also rich in protein and lower carbs. The experiment may have implications beyond the brewing business. Bone meal from slaughterhouses, sugar beet waste, and waste from other fermentation industries, such as those that produce bioethanol, are all likewise plentiful and protein-rich. All now look to be reasonable targets for nutrient recycling by insects. Whether consumers will be willing to eat insect-reared beef, though, remains to be seen. So this, by the way, hmm. I think this is a less fine, exciting story. What's that, sorry? Well, it's probably, well, people, I, I don't think people, as long as the beef is still the beef, right? right. It's sort Yeah, of- well, I, li- I live in America where there are far fewer rules than there are in Europe about mm. what you can and can't put into an animal before it's slaughtered. And yeah, I don't think they would even know. They wouldn't even know. Don't you think... just don't, yeah, don't tell them. I mean, but... I think there's always been methods to try and get people to eat insects generally anyway. Like I remember in Australia, we always have huge uh, plagues of locusts and locusts you can actually eat, but they're just so sort of, they look so horrible and they make such horrible noises that there's a, there's a huge problem, huge problem with it. But um, there's restaurants in Australia that have rebranded them because no one wants to eat locust. Uh, but they've been rebranded in certain restaurants as sky prawns, and people are eating them. It's just the it's just the name that's given it a different vibe altogether. We love prawns. They're basically a prawn. They're a prawn of the sky. So I mean, know, that is I, what they are. But I'm surprised that that worked. Yeah, yeah. There's well, so many places that well, because a lot of people once they start eating an insect, I used Don't to worry get, about uh, it, baby. It's BBC. just some pubic prawns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I already want some. Yeah, now. exactly. Some Get on down there. Um, <laughs> Sky prawns. Sky prawns. Ridiculous. I, I, I do have to say this story is is less exciting than the title suggested. In that, I thought that the insects might actually be sort of in some way, you know, bioengineered to actually create real meat but actually the beer right. these insects turn beer waste into beef via a cow right yeah, like you still need to actually have you, a live yeah, cow step, just, step one get some beef <laughs> step, yeah. right huh. but also that sort of suggests that we're all on top of what are cows the insects that they eat are eating ahead of being eaten by the cow like we're all like, no, don't give them, give them that beer stuff. We, we know what insects eat. Like, I don't know what an insect eats. I don't know what's gone into that ahead of eating cows. Will, yeah, oh, I guess I, cows don't really eat insects, do they? So they're sort of suggesting they're going to make that. Their they main would turn meal. it into like a mealy. I see. Thing. Sorry, yeah. okay, I've misunderstood that. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Hmm. I'm still fine with it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, yeah. This is. Uh, well, actually, it's not up to me. I, what, do cows like it? I guess they did the test and they showed that it didn't make much of a difference. But, you know, is it a huge difference? We've got, we've got to do way more tests on this kind of stuff. They do they do amazing yeah. amounts of tests for the sake of the animals. When, Like, do you know that in dog uh, food factories, they have someone who... Te- there's a dog food taster. There's someone who actually tastes the food on behalf of the dogs. It's the opposite way around. Um, to see whether or not the dogs will like it. And then there's someone who's employed to smell the breath of dogs as well, that they're testing new cans of food on, new 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 menus and new ingredients and so on, so that your dog at home won't just have pongy breath off the back of this new ingredient. So they just go around sniffing oh. inside their so mouths. Does, does, the breath, does the dog's breath indicate sort of 
bad nutrition or it's not it's not interacting well with the dog or is it just like nah it just kind of makes your breath stink it's just yeah i think it's just it makes your breath stink and i think a lot of people don't want a dog that's just got horrific breath and so because i do know for a fact that that is not a test they do with yeah they're not doing that at the cat factory Um, (laughs) (laughs) um i you know what uh i i i Jesse's the segue person. I'm just gonna do. I'm just gonna do this story because we've got a story. We're still in the world of eating animals. Uh-huh. <laughs> this this story. I I feel really under pressure here as well because our listener, this listener, sent in a few stories and said that she was impressed with me pronouncing her last name correctly in the lo- uh, last time. And now I'm like, fuck. What did I say last time? Because there are a couple of options. But Elena Ilminen. I'm hoping that's right. Um. Tell me if I got it wrong this time. But this is a story from Live Science about a 25 million year old slasher dolphin with weird teeth discovered in a museum collection. Mm. Uh, researchers mm. believe the creature named Nihohai Matakoi used its horizontal teeth to thrash up prey before and, gulping uh, it down. Is that the species name, or have they just named this particular? They just chose an insane name for this. <laughs> yeah, it's just this one. <laughs> they, they could have gone with you know, um, I don't know, uh, Peter Douglas. But they went <laughs> okay. All yeah. Right. This um. Nihohai this, this actually apparently it, it comes from according to the article it comes from Maori words because ah, it was yes. discovered in in okay. or near New Zealand. Okay. But Maori words meaning slashing teeth, face sharp. That checks out. And All if right. If you look at the fossil, checks pretty, out. Pretty accurate. And it was discovered in this museum collection in New Zealand. This toothy animal lived during the late uh. Oligocene, oligocene, oligo. I should I should know how these words are pronounced, but during the epoch, that epoch, which is thirty four to twenty three million years ago. Wow. They f- they described the extinct dolphin from a near complete skull found in a cliff face in New Zealand's South Island about twenty five years ago. And I hope you get an email, by the way, from that epoch next week saying you did pronounce yep. that correctly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <it's> just- <laughs> they. I don't know, because they wouldn't have had email back in that epoch. Ah, okay. We'll never know then. Mm. Yeah. Um, but uh, only flaw in that plan. But Ambre Costa, a researcher at the University of Otago in New Zealand and lead author of a study on the dolphin, had noticed the strange skull in the collection and realized how well-preserved and complete it was. That's what made the skull so interesting, she told Life Science. The skull, which is around two feet long, that's around 60 centimeters for the metric people, uh, has regular vertical teeth in the part of the jaw closer to the face and flat, long teeth closer to the snout. These longer teeth, measuring between 3.1 and 4.3 inches, that's around 8 to 11 centimeters, seem to jut out almost horizontally. Weird. It is, it is weird, but also I'm confused at the process here of how this has just been in a museum and someone's just noticed. Like, I, Oh, that happens all yeah. the time. Huh. I mean, are people just yeah, drop yeah, off loads of fossils and, and then... Yeah, yeah. And also collections get um, uh, transferred from private collections. And there's still... I went I went and did a behind-the-scenes tour of the Natural History Museum. Mm. And either either this has now changed or that this is still the case. There were still boxes from Darwin's trip on the Beagle 
that had yet to be catalogued oh, wow. and properly opened and stuff. So you've got stuff going right from the kind of the get-go of these museums opening that are still waiting. They've just got so, they've got too much. They have way too much. So okay. it's more often likely that a new species of an extinct species will be discovered in the back rooms of a museum than than it they might in the field. I'm, d- I'm like just it's, imagining it's, thirty uh, years of people just having their lunch, you know, back there, and in the middle of the table, there's a dolphin with teeth, and no one's no yeah. one's acknowledged <laughs> it. They're, they're just, you know, I, I've never really thought about it. That's kind of weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I, that's really interesting. So, so these these teeth, these fr- these flat teeth, don't interlock, according to Costi cost so so the mouth is nothing that would catch a fish oh. the close examination of the teeth show very little wear and tear suggesting it's unlikely the animal is rooting around in the sand for food so what were these spade-like teeth for to find out the researchers consider the behavior of modern animals that have teeth jutting out from their faces sawfish uh sawfish are raised with snouts that look like long flat chainsaws and according to a 2012 study in the journal Current Biology, juvenile sawfish thrash at food by hitting them with their teeth. They just whack their heads back and forth, and that will injure or stun or kill that sort of prey. So then it's easier to go and slurp it up. So they think these dolphins may have done the same. The idea is support- supported by its uh, cervical vertebrae, or neck bones, which were also part of the museum's collection. Unlike many modern dolphins, these, ha- these weren't fused, meaning the animal had a greater range of motion in its neck than many modern dolphins. So this would have likely helped the dolphins to thrash their prey to death. It's, it's weird when an animal is the- named after an invention, like a sawfish, you know, mm-hmm. or a hammerhead shark or something. It's like, well, that's a human thing that we, y- you know, I don't know. It just seems like a... yeah. You know, like if there was a, if we found a, um, a modem monkey, it looks like a modem. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, you'd be like, I mean, modem monkey just sounds like the name for the tech support person in an office. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> a modem monkey. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Dave's the modem monkey. All right. Don't call me that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, uh, all right, tech pig. Okay. Come on now. <laughs> yes. yeah, no HR here. This is horrible. Um, uh, <laughs> so that yeah, it's so, very interesting. It, it, now, yeah. when they found it in the cliff face, we're assuming that that used to be underwater, or did it just do an incredible leap and get stuck with its dumb teeth? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's sort of how they went extinct. The um, <laughs> yeah, they were always just plowing those way into, yeah, into soft just earth. getting stuck above the water, constant, just constantly. Hmm. Yeah, they were basically like had cable ties for faces. Yeah, <laughs> they could, they could not, go in, but they could never yeah, get themselves not a out great again. Design, yeah. Um, is this the only one that we know of, or is this just uh, like an extra it, skull that's been found of an existing I don't, species? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't seem to. It doesn't say in this article, but it, it, it does it has say to be, that oh, there well, wasn't no, much. They, say, wh- they describe the extinct dolphin from a near complete skull, but it's got to be corroborated, new- right? Like, how do you how do you know you're not finding an outlier? Well, that's the thing. They just have to roll off this one skull. Yeah, if it's the yeah. So, so it could be a whole. Not some... Yeah, this could be just a total freak dolphin. That's uh... yeah. Yeah, you're right. It could be if if they don't have more, it could be a mutation that was not successful. That was just right. Well, yeah. I imagine in two million years, if, a deformity. That... In two million years, if they find one giraffe, they're gonna go no fucking way. Yeah, yeah what happened to this horse? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we found the weirdest horse in the museum. 
It was, it was there. <laughs> but that's, I live in, I live in two spots. Uh, I, sorry, I live near two spots in London where we've got examples of that kind of thing happening. So you've got the Horniman Museum, which was a museum set up. This has come up on the show before. Yeah. So a, the, well, and the, that, car, um, the that car park, they found that fossil that looked just like Richard III. Crazy. That, uh, deformed, <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> that deformed dog or whatever that was. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. It was uncanny. Yeah, that was nuts, that moment. You're right. Um, <laughs> but no, they have the, the inflated walrus just there down the road from where I live. And then the other place is Crystal Palace Park, which is near where I live. Um, they have the first ever dinosaur park that was ever made. It was part of the Crystal Palace big ex- exhibition that happened. And This is somewhere you can take your dinosaur if you're a... Yeah, exactly. If you were going to yeah, showcase your dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, so this was based off the first ever, like Richard Owen was part of helping to make this. And he's the guy who coined the word dinosaur. And they knew so little about what dinosaurs looked back then, but they actually, you know, still built a picture of them that they built these dinosaurs, which just look like cartoon uh, parodies of what a dinosaur might look like. But that's what they thought they looked like. So the dinosaur part kind of sits there as a sort of reminder of how science shifts and we have and like you know with dinosaurs now of how like we think they're all feathered well we know they were feathered rather than not feathered you know so everything we know about the look of a dinosaur is just completely wrong right in terms of mm-hmm. velociraptors and t-rexes and stuff like that and that's what I'm, they do they I'm, just build it off the small amount of info that they have so that it sounds like that's i can't be certain because the article doesn't say but we might just be building up off this one skull yeah well so here's here's some more deduction that they've done which may or may not be right but they said there wasn't because there's not much wear on the teeth. The scientists suspect that the dolphins didn't eat fish with hard bones or scales. Instead, the animals would have likely eaten soft-bodied animals like squids and octopuses. And it also says it is possible the teeth had some sort of sexual or social function, but this would be difficult to test. And they they say that the use of these strange jutting teeth should be investigated further to understand why they evolved and why teeth like this keep appearing in different groups of animals. Why why would it be difficult to test? Because you can't find another dolphin and put it next to it and just go like, hey, does this look fuckable to you? Right, but they can't make some sort of, uh, they can't make some sort of, you know, funny mask for another dolphin and just see if it, see oh, if yeah, it just, like, gets laid at parties or something? I, I don't know. But but also, you, you, you never know, because these things sometimes go in fads, don't yeah. they? So, like, that could be, like, really attractive to a dolphin back in the day, but now you look at it and it's like, no, you know, it's like no, flares during the uh, like, this is not- Agola scene, everyone knows sideways teeth were the uh, bell-bottoms of the, of the day yeah. uh, <laughs> in the dolphin community. Mm. God, it'd be so much harder to be a time-traveling dolphin to fit in with your community than it would be a human going back to, say, like, ancient Rome or, or the 60s, because clothing is basically what would get us through, whereas they need proper facial right. reconstruction. Right. But wouldn't we also, we'd be, uh, like, I think we would just look, like, we'd all, first of all, we'd all be giants, right? I think uh, if you went to the, I don't know, I don't know enough about it, I don't, uh, but I mean... About humans? About humans. No, we were never... Yeah, like, we were never no, we weren't part of that big, like, the big sloths and stuff. I think we were pretty much our size and smaller. Well, that's, no, that's what I mean. Like, if you went back to uh, the year 1300, uh, just just the oh, average height was so, I mean, you would, people would still stare at you, is my point. Oh, I got so excited that you thought we were giants back in millions of years ago, that we just got smaller like all the other animals. <laughs> no, but, but I, uh, I 100% 
don't think that, but I, it's, I'm amazed at your tolerance of that potential viewpoint. If that's what I thought you, you just, you just politely corrected me. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's very kind of you. <laughs> that was, that was my whole process of writing my book was talking to people saying these things. Yeah, you're like, well, no, actually, going, no. Oh, instead look. of instead of like, what you fucking moron, like this. <laughs> yeah. I don't. So here's another thing. I'm not sure that we were ever shorter back in the day, and that's the. I know that to play like when you look at old English houses and European houses, and the doors were lower and stuff right. like that. People thought, oh, well, people were smaller back then. The reason for that was it was to save on on materials. You were saving on wood. Right. Because wood would have been expect- expensive to make a tall door. Why do you need a tall door? Right. Why spend all that money on a thing? So we have this kind of weird uh, hangover of a myth that mm. people were smaller because of the, yeah, the architecture okay. around them. Okay. I, I do know Napoleon was taller than people think as well. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, thank you. Sorry. I don't know if you, that, that was, that was my cat just knocking over the microphone. If anyone heard like a rustling sound just then, that was him rubbing his cheek across the microphone to mark it with his scent and then knocking it over in the process. Yep. So thanks for that. Mm-hmm. I, li- I like that you said thank you to your cat before you told yeah. us what happened. That was I mean, it was nice. Yeah. It was sarcastic, but I'm not sure he fully appreciates sarcasm. <laughs> wow. So what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> there is a lot of that. I was, Napoleon oh, thank was... you. Thank you for putting your ass in my face. Thank you. <laughs> what do you mean uh, Napoleon was... What are you talking about? Napoleon... Did he just have a massive, massive horse then? Or what's going on? He was... So there's there's a few reasons for the misconception about his height. And I only know this because I named an Edinburgh show shorter than Napoleon a few years back uh, and ended up like reading up about this. But he was yeah, like... Just a bunch of pissed off like historians five... in your audience. Yeah. Um... <laughs> he, he was about 5'7", okay. so, which is, um, you know, yeah, not that night. short. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's a few... There's a few reasons for the mix-up. Like it's... Um, firstly, there's a confusion between... British and French feet and inches. They were, there is a, they, you know, there was not standardization of imperial measurements back then. So right. it was just what it was reported that his height was like five, two or five. It was three, just based on like actually, whichever King's foot you happen to have in your country. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then also he surrounded himself with really tall bodyguards. So he looked shorter in comparison. Uh, and then also there was a bit of just British propaganda. <laughs> just like, yeah. No, it's like ah, he's a short. It's task. actually because he was always quite far away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, look how small that guy is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Have we not considered Napoleon was perhaps far away? Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. But yeah, he was. He was like five six, five seven. Like he was. You know, not. Not tall, but he wasn't like the sort of, you know, hovering around the five foot mark that people think. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and, uh, and and I think that's what we were, that, was that all we were talking about right at the point that the microphone that I was disrupted by? Yeah. A very. Um, uh, yeah, we were talking about uh, Jesse's well, theory of giant humans. Yes, uh, my theory that. that I believe and that I. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we do have a story that Mike, Michael Scully says. Well, in. you know, is, Napoleon all... famously died from, uh, according to his autopsy, died of a stomach ulcer, um, stomach cancer, um, exacerbated by bleeding gastric ulcers. But I'll tell you something: uh, if he had died from a stroke, 
Um, he might have had a risk reduction by using there, a, a supermarket trolley. There it is. There's this this story that's in, the Guardian is the version of the story we're using. But there is a a plan to potentially identify people at risk of stroke, which one in forty five people in the UK are living with um, arterial fibrillation, which causes ab- abnormal heart rhythm and can increase the risk of stroke. Hmm. And that's to install um, ECG sensors in the handles of supermarket shopping trolleys to screen adults for abnormal heart rhythms as they shop. This trial was carried out at four Sainsbury supermarkets over three months involving over 2,000 adults. Oh, I thought this was just like identifying like how how many cakes are they putting in the trolley? Yeah. You know? (laughs) One of those creepy stories where... It sounds more like the kind of emotion they're having when they see that the cakes have been reduced by 25%. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So um, they were instructed to hold the trolley handle for at least 60 seconds. If the sensors picked up signs of arterial fibrillation, a red cross flashed up on the trolley's handle while a green tick showed if no signs were detected. Wow. And then in a further screening measure, they were all given a pulse check. The findings uh, revealed that when ECG data for 220 participants who consented to having the data analyzed and were flagged as potentially having AF were considered by a cardiologist... 59 of them were diagnosed as having the condition, 39 of whom were previously unaware that they were affected and were subsequently contacted to arrange a cardiology appointment. So, all right, this is actually screening and effectively checking people. And so this uh, challenges the idea. So the author of the study, Professor Ian Jones, challenged the idea that some communities were hard to reach. My response is they're not hard to reach. We're just difficult to access. By adopting this kind of approach to health screening, we've become more accessible and therefore we're more likely to identify healthcare problems. Wow. Uh, but the, the team said further work was needed to improve the accuracy of the approach, noting that 20% of the ECGs were unclear, typically because hand movements complicated readings. In addition, while the method correctly identified between 70 and 93% of the time those with AF, it was less accurate at spotting those without the condition. So overall, the team estimated that over only a quarter to a half of those flagged as having AF actually had the condition when reviewed. I, I guess the, the issue is you'd be more worried about false negatives than false positives, right? Yeah. Because a false positive, you then go to a real, to get like a proper test from a doctor and then they'll screen you. But the the more worrying one would be if you are getting the green tick saying everything's fine and it isn't fine. But what a what a bummer <laughs> of a grocery shop for you though you know it'd be be like when you're on a roller coaster and they take that photo if that could detect cancer you know so you get off and you're like oh shit (laughs) you know like i mean you're you're just trying to pop down for some uh some bread and then you find out i mean i yeah such a grim checkout process that'll be uh 56 bucks and you're on the brink of a stroke Mm -hmm. uh yeah i mean i i do also that the checkout beep noise would just sound terrifying (laughs) yeah You're just waiting for it to flatline. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Scanning. It definitely also, you'd have to get around the sort of reticence of people, you know, the same people who believe that Bill Gates wants us to eat bugs uh, or wants to force us to eat bugs and live live in a walled city um, will also be, I think, loath to put their hands on a shopping trolley that takes your vitals and that. Well, and the the, yeah. the interesting thing about I mean, I'd also want to know what's being done with the data. You know, I wouldn't nec- I wouldn't trust like Sainsbury's offhand to not be collecting weird data on you. I'd want to I want to see a fairly comprehensive data protection form. Well, if you're doing the shopping for someone else, then they get the stroke. That's the what they're not telling you is you can pass <laughs> this on. This is uh, I mean, I, I 
Yes, I very much support diagnostic. I mean, they're talking about it's communities that are hard to reach. It's more, you know, free healthcare out there. I, I, that's cool. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how many people are going to go for this, you know, diagnostic data on the shopping cart or something. It'd be like if, if, uh, you went and got your hair done in a perm or something and they, they were also checking you for MR. They were also doing an MRI. Like it just, it inserts a lot of, uh, anxiety yeah. into very menial tasks. More, yeah. Like, more than, like, oh, more than one for an MRI. If you go for an MRI, it, the thought then is, is there any way I can double up on this experience somehow? Oh, there's that place <laughs> that also does my hair at the same time. I'll book into there. Right. So maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's like, I need to go and check whether my, my, my levels are at the point where I'm on the brink of a stroke. But also what I could go for some jelly like, beans. Like I'll get a vasectomy whenever exactly. I want to just have my crotch shaved. Like if, I, if I'm like in the, like I can save on any kind of crotch shaving just by getting that done. It's, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to uh, roll this out as a... They were just doing this as a test, right? It's not... Sainsbury's isn't just going to have that. Yes. No, they, it was right. absolutely yeah, right. being done as a one-off clinical tri- right. trial. But it it does make sense, though, to have various other locations where you can do a, at least like a provisional will catch a bunch of people test that will look out for this thing that can be you know, a very serious thing that can be headed off at the past. Well, I, I guess they're just trying earlier. to figure out what... What's a reliable surface where people's where you can get a pulse check? You yeah. know, and I and I guess what's a thing that people are going to hold on to for a decent right? Amount of and time? that I mean that does make sense, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, but I, I, people yeah, are just going to start grocery shopping in gloves, though. They're like, I don't want to know that. I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you can also just not touch that bit of the trolley, or I'm sure opt out of the study or pick up a different cart. But um, yeah. But hey, it is interesting. Here's a fun thing you can do in a in a supermarket these days. Mm-hmm. My my buddy did this. He's called Levin Skyra. He's a comedian and scientist uh, in Belgium, and he did this for a show that he created. You can go in and you know those little you get your own individual scanner now. It's like a little gun laser gun thing, and you, you yeah. Pick up your product. I, I don't think that's made it over to the US. I, I've oh, seen those in other. Do it on the, yeah, I've I've done that in other stores. They can do it on the app. I think some of them do that. Maybe in the US. Yeah. But yeah. Right. Oh, Okay, Definitely well, Tesco in the UK. UK yeah, exactly. I, I saw that. You pick up a scanner on the way in, and you just do everything on your cart, and then it just like you go. It's already done when you get to the checkout. Yeah, you hand you hand the scanner over when you get to the to the checkout, and they just okay, everything's now been scanned, and it's uh, it's really cool, and it's uh, yeah, I'm, it's it's over here and it's over in Europe, and he does a thing where he has his friends each you print out a T-shirt that has one single barcode on it. And you all go into the supermarket, you've all got a different barcode, and it becomes uh, like a laser tag kind of thing. You go running around trying to get each other's oh, barcode. That's fun. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So the, so I really like that. That's around. so silly. It's amazing. Laser Quest or whatever. I don't know what it's called in America. It is. Yeah, yeah. Laser Quest. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can do you can do your own laser, laser quest do a free... in the UK by just, <laughs> but... by printing out T-shirts with giant barcodes for Cocoa Pops or whatever. Right. And yeah. That's just, you know, if you're worried about strokes in Sainsbury's, uh, on the flip side, turn it into it's a good way. Class. Yeah, get some extra exercise. I do know more than one comic who has been diagnosed by a doctor in their audience with various things. Oh, wow. Really? You mean, you mean like, uh, yeah, like uh, when they're doing the somebody hold my balls while I cough bit? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. that. <laughs> Just <They're> uh, classic. <laughs> who wants to hold the camera while I slowly yeah. insert it? Yeah. I always, yeah, it's the big closer. You pick someone in the front row to cup your balls while you sneeze. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I do know multiple, like, multiple comics who have been told by a medical professional after the show, like, you should get that checked out. Like they've just been talking about something like, yeah, this is it's been doing that. And they're like, yeah, this is probably uh uh in fact oh actually God. there was one um Steve Hall, friend of the show, talked about it um because he used to he used to go on stage and talk about how how stretchy his skin was, and like as a bit, he sort of like pull his mouth open and go, look at this. And then I think this one actually wasn't already member, I think this was Paul Sinha, uh, who's a comic and a, oh, and, a, comic and a doctor, doctor. Yeah. Yeah, and said, uh, "Yeah, that's a you've pro- probably got a connective tissue thing. It's genetic, and you should get that checked out because it can come with heart problems." And he's like, "Okay, wow. <laughs> that's amazing." I remember seeing in Edinburgh, Kerry uh, Marks did a a show not long. He, he's a he's a buddy of yours, I think. Is he? Married? Yeah, he's also he's friend of the show. He's been on the show before. Oh, okay, right. So I was he he had a um, he had a heart attack, didn't he, years ago? And yes, uh, it was quite scary, but he got through it. And then he came back and did a show all about the experience. And I was in the audience one night in Edinburgh watching the show, and and um, I think Steve Chordle from uh, Chordle was in the audience as well, reviewing the show. And uh, suddenly, as he's telling the stories, and he's telling there's a lot of kind of gory bits to the story. A guy in the front row just keels over and falls to the ground or falls like onto the the person next to him. And Carrie sees it and kind of immediately identifies it as very similar to what happened to him. Stops the show, goes running out, finds a doctor, they come back in. And fortunately, the guy, it turned out, had just had an operation or something earlier that day and had just less blood in him, I guess, or something where he just felt incredibly faint. But it was it's the only time where I've seen a show where something very scary was being described by the comedian and then the front row almost replicates yeah, what was happening. Wow. Also, and then the review came out and Steve didn't mention it. Just didn't mention this big <laughs> 15 minute fucking amazing moment. Well, surely in the uh, show. Where someone's life gets saved halfway through. Well, so my... Uh, solid jokes, really good stories. Uh, someone's life was saved. Three stars. So my, my friend Keith Alberstadt I... Uh, comic here in the states he has a, a chunk that he was doing on stage about um like animals that fly like you know birds and things like that and uh right. flight and animals and he's doing the bit one night in like alabama or something and it's on video it's hilarious uh, he's doing the bit one night and he gets attacked by bats <laughs> and so but but people was, people were like how'd you train those bats to come out and do that so it makes me wonder if your friend like if people were like oh he's really going overboard with the audience plant you know this guy yeah. people yeah. do think that but also if you're doing a show that's medical themed then you do tend to attract medical professionals will come to the show as well like they'll so quite o- I think Carrie would quite often have doctors and nurses in yeah. his audience just for that reason. But I, I kind of agree with that, with what you're saying, Jesse, because this was in a period of Edinburgh comedy shows that was not long after another comedian who, Matt, you'll know really well, Brendan Burns, 
had won yeah. an Edinburgh Prize where he planted someone in the audience to have an, a, a fight with him and storm out of the show. And suddenly this whole stunt audience thing was kind of a, a happening thing. So I do remember when it happened, there was confusion. Is this? And I think the fact that Carrie just left the room to find someone kind of... Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, it's just... Um, we should leave this room. We should. How's that for there a segue? But... Uh, <laughs> Dan, where, where can our listeners find you and everything you do? And more importantly, your brand new book, which I've, from the Largo segments I've read so far, is excellent. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I can be found uh, somewhere in between the Horniman and the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs in my <laughs> self. Uh, if you want to say hi online, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Schreiberland is my tag. And then, yeah, the book is it's out in America now and it is in every store. It's on Amazon and other online places. And yeah, it's uh, if anyone listening can please pick up a copy, even if you thought I was shit on this show don't like me at all just please do it anyway because uh, it's really hard to sell books when you're in britain as a british author in america this i i feel like if you like this show uh you there's a very high chance that you like the yeah, stuff that Dan yeah does and it's, this, it it's, a it's very... the same fan base you're gonna love you're gonna lo- get the book you're gonna love the book get the book you will enjoy it and also you know it's the holidays coming up as well you know it's perfect perfect stocking stuffer mm-hmm. yep yeah, right around the exactly. corner Exactly. It's a really good description, and this is kind of slightly blowing my own horn, but this is this was an amazing thing for me to have happen. But I got a review yesterday in the New York Times, a really chunky review about the book, and it's a really good description about exactly what's in the book. So if you're curious what it's about, uh, Google my name and New York Times, and that will come up. Um, Yeah. We we can also put a link to that in the show notes, uh, where we also put links to all the stories we cover. And you can find us, uh, probablyscience.com is the website where all the show notes are. You can also find us online at probablyscience, individually at Jesse Case and at Matt Kirshen, and probablyscience at gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, stories you would like us to cover. And um, once again, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we'll see you guys soon. Bye. Bye.